Welcome to Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler and I work with Ben Kramer here at Cathedral of the Rockies. Today's sermon is the final part of a five-part series and this sermon is titled, Where Religion and Politics Meet. Not a controversial topic at all. So, at the beginning, you hear Ben mention the saying uh, that you've probably heard about keeping politics out of church because we're supposed to be just preaching the gospel, you know, preach the gospel only, not politics or any political things. Keep politics out of church. Um, yeah, so anyways, I actually used to say this a lot myself, um, and I believe this. However, what's interesting is a few years ago, I did a deep study into the word gospel, and what I found is that in the etymology of the word that we get gospel from, it has political overtones built into it, especially during the time of Jesus and the first century church, uh, and before Jesus for that matter. So where does this word come from? So the word gospel, it comes from the Greek word euangelion, uh, and that's the word in the Greek New Testament that gets translated to gospel. But more simply, what it means is good news. The word gospel is just a word that kind of came about by other ways. and But most simply, it's just good news. Um, but it not it's not just like good news in general. There's actually a very specific kind of good news that this word was used for. Um, and the things that you find most often, especially in like earlier Greek literature that predates the New Testament is it would be like good news about victory of a big battle. Um, so someone coming to announce the, you know, the euangelion, the good news about victory. Um, you also hear it about the good news of the coming of a new king or new ruler, the crowning or anointing of that person. Um, and that latter one often implied the coming of a new kingdom reign uh, because of the new ruler. So, and even further, what you find, uh, to now draw this into the Bible, back into the Bible, that in the Hebrew Bible, and when it got translated into Greek, the word in Hebrew that had the similar meaning was translated into euangelion. So you, you see that connection even from the Hebrew uh, Bible into the Jewish, or not the Jewish, into the Greek New Testament, or the Greek Old Testament, sorry. Um yeah, so my conclusion from all this is that the word gospel is inherently a political term because it's involving politi- like political figures or political matters, uh, anything that has to do with like the civilization or the city or the... Um, yeah, and I would argue that the authors of the New Testament gospel accounts are using this term with that meaning in mind and intentionally using it. Um, I think that's why the... The term kingdom of God is such a central theme throughout because it's the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of the new king, Jesus. Um, and contra- and you contrast that with the kingdom of Caesar or Rome. Um, yeah, so with that, the question I'm always asking is, okay, if that's the case, what does it mean for the gospel to be political in nature for us today? How do we live out the gospel live out this good news in this context. And I think that's where Jesus's words and example are extremely important. And that's kind of where Ben will go to and kind of draw on that to try and help us understand what does it mean when politics and religion meet? And how is that supposed to look like? Um, Not is it supposed to happen, but 
I think it is by the very nature of the word gospel. So how do we do it? So anyways, hope you find this helpful and enjoy. Today we're going to look at the law of love, who, who we are called to be as Christ's disciples. And there's, there's this part in the book of Matthew that I really feel like encapsulates this, but I don't know about you, but as I read this in preparing for the Sunday, it challenges, challenges me a lot in, in, in our time, in our culture today. So just listen to these words, but if you have your Bibles with me, uh, open it uh, there with me. The, the words will be on the screen. But I love in my common English Bible, it says the law of love right before this section. Um, and I think that's such a perfect title for what Jesus is, is saying here. Listen to these words of Christ. You have heard that it was said, and we've heard this said in our culture today as well. You must love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your God who is in heaven. God makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even unbelievers do the same thing? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. The written word of the Lord. Now, just a, just a note of the Greek there. When it says, that was one of the scariest verses to me growing up. Be perfect as your God is perfect, right? Like, I failed at this already. There's no way I can be perfect like God. But uh, the Greek word there, I think, is a, a much deeper meaning, as always. The Greek word is telos. And the Greeks had this very deep understanding of purpose. And that's, that's the Greek word for purpose is telos. You're all sitting down in a chair. What do you think the chair's telos or purpose is? Sitting, right? So how do you make a chair complete? Do what you're doing right now. The chair is complete because it's fulfilling its created purpose, right? What was humanity created to do? Reflect God's image in the world. We are created in God's image to reflect and bear God's love in the world. So when Jesus says, be complete as God is incomplete, as God is complete, Jesus is saying, be in complete love as God has complete love for you. Be perfect as you were created to be and live into that created purpose. So that saved me a lot of anxiety. Maybe it does for you. We'll move on from there. The phrase I often heard, especially as a pastor in training, was don't be political, just preach the gospel. Anyone heard that phrase before? Don't be political, just preach the gospel. It always confused me because I was raised in evangelical spaces, and the ones who often told me this phrase were very outspoken about their political party and who they should vote for and how Christians should support certain political issues and not others. 
So it often felt like to me that they were telling me to just preach the spiritual parts of the gospel, but not the social or physical or political parts of the gospel. You see, when you only have your preacher speak on the spiritual elements, the inward parts of the gospel, you don't have to have your political perspectives challenged all that much. That's a pretty sweet deal, right? When we don't have to be challenged on those deep convictions, we just have our spiritual things spoken about and how to get to heaven, and then we leave the gospel there. But what do we do then when the intersection of religion and politics meet? This quote from uh, Tony Campolo is one of my, one of my favorites. He, he says, mixing religion and politics is like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't do much for the manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. And maybe that's where you find yourself today, that it just shouldn't mix at all. They should be totally and completely separate. Maybe you've seen the past couple of years how Christians have gotten involved in politics and it smells like manure in all the wrong ways, right? And you want nothing to do with it. And guess what? I get it. If that's where you're at, I understand but I think there, there's a deeper question here for us who are disciples of Jesus. Is there a better and more faithful way for our politics and faith to meet? Well, I, I love, as you know, I'm a words person, so I love to go to the root words of things. And I really think it helps with this conversation. The word politics comes from the Greek word polis, which literally means the affairs of the city. Politics, the affairs of of the city. And whenever I think of this root word of politics, I think of Jeremiah 29, 7. And Jeremiah says this, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare will be your welfare. Right? So, so we share in the welfare of our city, whether or not we are either hurt or, or helped by the state of our town, our city, our state, our nation, the world. Does not God care about the affairs of the city, the state, the nation, the world? My friends, I assure you that if wherever humans are involved, God cares about it. Why? Because God deeply cares about humanity. So God deeply cares about the affairs of the city, the, the, the polis, the politics. There's another Greek word that I, I want to look at this morning, and it's, it's the word ekklesia. How many of you have heard that word before? Ecclesia, one of my favorite ones to say. It's a fun word to say. This word means the called out community. Ecclesia. You know how we pronounce this word in English? Church. That's the Greek word for church. Ecclesia, the called out community. Church. It's used all throughout scripture to refer to the called out people of Israel to be a light to the world. It's the word that Jesus uses to Peter when he says, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, the called out community in the world. Jesus established the church, a called out community, a repented community to embody the gospel, the kingdom of God in the world. 
So when we Christians ask the question about religion and politics, what we are really asking is what does it mean to be a called out community, this ecclesia, the body of Christ together within the affairs of the city? This is always a relevant question. What does it mean to be the church today? I ask that question all the time. (laughs) But it's kind of my job. But it's such an important part of what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be the church today? The late Eugene Peterson, who's the author of the Message Translation and just wonderful scholar all the way around, he, he tweeted this once, and I've never forgotten it. He said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone ever imagines but in a way that no one expects. I love that. It is more political than anyone ever imagines, but in a way that no one expects. The gospel operates by the politics of God rather than the politics of earthly empires. It always looks upside down, in fact, in comparison to the kingdoms of the world. Where the kingdoms of the world prioritize the rich and the powerful and the mighty, the kingdom of God prioritizes the cause of the poor, the lowly, the marginalized, the oppressed. Rome had this saying called Pax Romana, which meant the peace of Rome. And guess how they maintained and kept that peace? Through force and violence. And then you have Jesus coming along and saying, turn the other cheek. If they ask you, if they force you to go one mile, go two. You will shame oppressive laws by outdoing them in humility and love, right? So this kingdom of God that Jesus calls us, this called out community, is called to look upside down to the ways in which the kingdoms of the world operates, the kingdom of God prioritizes the cause of the poor. If, if you ever want to question that, look at Luke chapter 4, Jesus' very first sermon. He's a, young, he's a young pastor, right? Very first sermon in the synagogue. He comes along to his Jewish brothers and sisters and he says, Behold, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the rich, to the poor, <laughs> to set the captives free, to bring health to the sick, to liberate the oppressed, and to bring the year of Jubilee, which, you know, I've said this before, it meant massive debt forgiveness in all the nation. Let's just start with that one and work backwards, okay? But reallocation of God's resources for the most vulnerable. And you know what the congregation did that day? They gave him a standing ovation. No, they ran him out and tried to push him off a cliff. So be careful when you advocate for the poor, the powerless, the, the marginalized, and the oppressed because it, it messes with the status quo. It messes with money and power and the ways that the empires like to operate. Well, as we think of this phrase, don't be political, just preach the gospel, I think the prophets of the Old Testament give us a really clear picture of what the politics of God looks like. Let me just give you a few examples here. This is the prophet Isaiah. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the orphan. That's just the beginning of Isaiah chapter 10. He's just getting started there. Don't be political. Just preach the gospel. 
Let's listen to Amos here. This is what Amos says. This is what the Lord says. I hate, I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous worship services. If you bring me your, the entirety of your burnt offerings and gifts, I won't be pleased. I won't even look at your offerings of well-fed animals. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to your hymns. Instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Don't be political. Just preach the gospel. Micah 6.8, where this whole sermon series was founded on, starts on by God bringing a lawsuit against the foundations of the entire nation of Israel. And God said that they had strayed away from God completely. Then we get to verse 8 that says, What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with God. Don't be political, just preach the gospel. Do you think then, do you think when the prophet said these things to the nation of Israel, Israel responded, oh yeah, they're right. That, you know, that's not offensive at all. I'm so glad you told us this. Thank you. We are going to change our ways right now. No, no. The, the way that they responded to the prophets was just as, as vehement and angry when we get our deepest convictions called out, Right? In fact, prophets did not have a high survival rate in Israel because they said things like this, right? Jesus even points it out later on in the book of Matthew. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as hens, as, as a chick gathers her, her chicks under her wings, yet you are not willing, how much I've longed to gather you as what? A called out community together to be unified under the mission of God in the world, but you are not willing. A called out community to gather humanity in the shelter of God's love and justice. This makes me think of those that our empire, our nation has killed out for calling out injustice among us. That five-year period between 1963 and 68 when John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy were all assassinated. And it wasn't that they were just assassinated, it was why? Because of their work in the civil rights movement and in working for workers' unions movement. MLK was assassinated at a workers' union event, rally. It was for advocating for the marginalized, the broken, the oppressed, those who have had oppressive laws issued against them. And they were assassinated for it. MLK especially drew from the teachings of Jesus for the reasons behind his political nonviolent resistance in the nation. So then what does it mean for us Christians today? And since we're talking to a room of Methodists, let's just make it more narrow. What does it mean for Methodists to be a called out community within the affairs of the city? My friends, I wasn't raised Methodist, but can I tell you from an outsider's perspective what drew me to Methodism? It was the fact that every movement that prioritized the poor since before the United States was even a nation, there were Methodists leading the charge against the abolition of slavery, for workers' unions, against child labor laws, for women's suffrage. They were ordaining women in leadership since before they even had the right to vote in this country. 
So we were, we were leading the charge in so many ways. So when anyone says to me now, religion and politics should never meet, I say, oh, hi, I'm a Methodist. You must have never met one of us before. <laughs> so really, this relationship between religion and politics, this ecclesia of the affairs of the city is less a matter of if it should mix, but really How? And more important than that, it's a matter of identity, knowing who we are as that ecclesia. The prophet's ability to speak truth to power came from them knowing that they were sent by God to call out a community to live according to God and even call the king to accountability. I've told you this before, but it was knowing who he was as a prophet of God that allowed the prophet Nathan to confront King David about the murder of Uriah and the rape of Bathsheba, to shake his finger in his face and says, you are the one who has brought this injustice into the kingdom. King David could have had Nathan's head on a spit like that, but Nathan knew he was not owned by the empire. He was not owned by the throne. He was not owned by the king. He was sent by God. He knew who he was. And from that identity, he was able to speak truth to power no matter the consequences. Nathan didn't think, maybe Nathan didn't even think he was going to leave that throne room today. It's like, I'm going to go call out King David for everything that he's done here today and tell him to repent. He may have lost his life over that. But King David relented. I think this is why our Bible has so many books attributed to the prophets. There are over 17 books named after prophets. How many books are named after specific kings? There's just one, and it's just his songs and poems, right? It's the best thing the kings have to offer, right? There's first and second kings that talk about. So 1 Samuel 8, read it. Ever since 1 Samuel 8, the whole Bible has this really uneasy relationship with kings. Even their best kings live up to 1 Samuel 8. They will overtax you, they will misuse and abuse your sons and daughters, and they will send you to endless wars. That's what Samuel said, and Israel says, we want a king anyways. And God says, do not let this break your heart. They have chosen a king over me. That's what starts the relationship with kings. What we hear from the prophets is what Jesus quotes more often than anything else in the New Testament. So the Bible really cares about what the prophets have to say. So who are we then? We are ecclesia, this called out community, the church. Where are we? We are in an earthly nation. Whose are we? Are we owned by the empire? Are we owned by the nation? Or are we citizens of the kingdom of God? Just like the prophets, we can only speak truth to power when we understand who we are. And we only know who we are by knowing whose we are. And we are Christ's first and foremost. So our question today is, are you willing to be part of a prophetic church in the world? What is being preached about should even challenge the preacher. And I have to tell you, getting into scripture is sometimes the most uncomfortable thing for me that week. Because if your pastor is not being challenged too, then they don't have anything challenging to bring. Right? We have to be the most challenged by what we're studying to bring that to you. Can you live in the tension of discussion? 
My friends, do you know what? One of the biggest problems I feel like with all the hot button issues, two things, and this is Pastor Ben's, we're going off script, it's really scary, but two things. We do not address the nuanced complexity of the hot button issues in our nation right now. We have no idea how some of the deepest things we care about actually impact the people on the front lines of those issues. So are we as the church, this ecclesia, this called out community, we should be the first ones willing to say, you know what? I don't want an either or just one dimensional understanding of this huge issue. I want the complexity. I want the nuance. I want to understand how people are actually harmed by this on the front lines. And then I want to make a political understanding or decision about that. Those two things have just been marring our dialogue. It's either one or the other. You're on one side or the other when the church should say, hey, we really need to come together because actual people's lives are being impacted by these things that we vote for. We need to be on the front lines of those issues and understand how they are impacting real people's lives before we as Christians can make heartfelt loving decisions about these things. Can you live in the tension of differences with those you disagree with? My friends, if Rebecca and I left each other the first time we disagreed, we wouldn't have made it through dating, right? We w- if, if we left each other every single time that we disagreed with each other, we wouldn't be at church here this morning, right? We as people, we're going to disagree. But again, we don't know how to have dialogue. We need to have dialogue if we're going to move the ball forward on some of these deep issues. Can you as a church, can we as a church be a church who speaks truth to the empire without being tempted to become the empire itself? Can we do that? The gospel afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflict, afflicted, always. When the gospel is preached rightly, it afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. So, as you can imagine, can we be a church who pursues the common good for all people in the affairs of the city, especially the most vulnerable rather than just what is good for our own religious group? Another phrase that I grew up hearing a lot was, we need to be a Christian nation, right? I felt like I couldn't preach on that without touching on that because we're Christians, we're in the nation, we talk about nations and Christians, so it just felt like it came together. Um, But I hear this a lot, and so when someone says that the United States is to be a Christian nation, what they are most often referring to is that the nation should conform to their own preferred theology and interpretation of Scripture on which many, even Christians, don't agree, right? For example, I'm a Protestant. I wouldn't want a Catholic-controlled nation, nor would Catholics want a Protestant-controlled nation. We've had lots of history to prove that, right? Especially in Europe, how that doesn't work well. As a Wesleyan, I wouldn't want a Calvinist-controlled nation, And guess what? Calvinists really wouldn't want a Wesleyan-controlled nation. And on top of that, do you know that there's more than 200 different Christian sects within the United States alone, all with their own theological beliefs, ecclesiology, and interpretations of Scripture? Who then determines what kind of Christianity the nation should uphold then? Quaker? 
Anabaptist, Seventh-day Adventist, Wesleyan, Methodist, Catholic, the list could go on. Also, side note, among the U.S. founding fathers, not all of whom were Christians, there were Anglicans, Quakers, Lutherans, Congregationalists, Dutch Reformed, Roman Catholics, and the majority of them were deists, which is a Christian sect that we don't really talk about a lot today. It would be hard-pressed to push all the founding fathers into one Christian camp. And also, the nation they left was a Christian nation. This place you may have heard of, Britain, um, it, it was controlled by the Anglican church at that time, a Protestant church. It was a Christian nation. So they were actually leaving that because it wasn't going very well, right? So this excludes not only so many other religions, what is most often meant, and I have to clarify this definition for you, what is most often meant by Christian nation is a neo-evangelical form of Christianity that's tied to a very fundamentalist interpretation of scripture and is a largely white movement. This excludes not only so many other religions, but many other Christians as well. This is why I think, this is Ben Kramer, I think the separation of church and state is so crucial for several reasons. One, it not only allows all Americans to live according to their own religious and non-religious beliefs, but it also allows the church to maintain a prophetic witness in the world. When the church crawls into bed with political power, its voice not only becomes one with the state, but its Christian witness becomes a mouthpiece for the empire rather than for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the most vulnerable in the world. My friends, that's what Christian nationalism looks like, being a mouthpiece for a Christian empire. This is why I'll so often say, and I get in so much trouble for this, if Jesus wanted a Christian nation, he would have founded one, but he didn't. He established the church, the ecclesia, the called out community to be among the nations of the world, right? We Christians are called to be the church, the body of Christ, maintaining our prophetic witness towards the world's empires. We lose that prophetic power when our Christian witness becomes indistinguishable from the ways of the empires of the world. Instead of pursuing a Christian nation then, which means different things to everyone, we Christians should pursue being a Christian church, ecclesia instead. Then and only then can we truly be a called out community within the affairs of the city. The only government that can guarantee freedom of religion is one that is free from religious control. As a Christian, I don't want a nation controlled by a different sect of Christianity or a different religion. As an American, I want a democracy free from religious control. In this way, the church is free to be the church, the state is free to be the state, and each American is free to abide by their religious and non-religious values. I want to bring some action steps today to see this in our lives. Um, first, would you... Pledge to live Micah 6.8 in all aspects of your life. To be just, be kind, be humble. To act justly and pursue justice by standing and speaking out for those who are vulnerable, mistreated, exploited, and in need. Secondly, would you, would you practice kindness and mercy and even 
interaction with those you disagree, that's a really, really hard one for me. <laughs> it's a really hard one for me. I, uh, Dwayne likes to say this a lot, but it's very true for us pastors. Uh, when we think of disagreement, we think of Mondays because um, that's when we open our emails from <laughs> what happened the day before, right? So we just get to spend Sunday just completely naive thinking the service went so perfectly. And then there's Monday, right? We open that up. But we have to be able to enter into disagreement without being disagreeable, right? We have to be able to enter into disagreement without hating another person to have these nuanced, complex uh, conversations. My friends, one, one of the biggest issues I want you to think and pray about right here in Idaho, we are c- confronted with the biggest surplus in Idaho's history right now. So why are we taxing food? Why, why are kids going hungry at school because we've cut funding for free lunches? Why? And I don't care if there's a Democrat or Republican as governor. We need to call these things out. Children are going hungry. <laughs> And there's people on the fringe. Come volunteer for our food pantry and you'll see people who are on the edge barely keeping it together because of things like these food taxes. These are the, we need to be a called out community. Uh, Lastly, uh, would you act in humility, surrendering our will to God's will, acknowledging that we may not always be right and should listen more and speak less. For pastors, that's really, really hard, (laughs) right? Listen more, speak less. I think Christianity needs to sound more like love rather than the insistence that we have everything right. We need to sound more like love. My friends, as the political tensions continue to grow, especially into the November elections, in our nation, our culture, our, our world desperately needs an ecclesia, a church that knows that they're the church so that they can speak prophetically to the powers of this world, especially for the sake of the vulnerable, marginalized, oppressed, and the poor, and not be tempted by becoming an empire ourselves. Would you pray with me? Lord God, may this be the kind of politics our religion is known for, the complete law of love that you call us to, where we are able to enter into the tensions of these disagreements, understand the nuance of these hot topics, but Lord God, that we act just, act kind, and act humbly together as we pursue these needed issues in our world. Would you give us the strength, the boldness to be this called out community in the affairs of our nation? In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to, we'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at amity.campus at boisefumc.org. That email will be in the show notes. Finally, as a smaller congregation, our budget is pretty tight. If you'd like to help out and donate to us, there is a link to do so in the show notes. Of course, no pressure, only if you're feeling called to give. But more income does mean possibly more content and better quality of content, as well as supporting our current ministries and those we'd like to expand on. 
Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.